The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Tonight, Fox presents a world premiere motion picture from the creators of the hit comic book series, The X-Men, comes Generation X. They've got the power. They've got the technology. They're the new generation of superheroes. And they're coming. To save the world. You can't win. Hey, so Get ready for Generation X on a Fox Tuesday night movie. Generation X was a popular term in the 1990s referring to individuals born from 1960 to 1981. Generation X is also the name of a Marvel Comics publication that debuted in 1994, written by Scott Lobdell, with art by Chris Bacillo. But most importantly, Generation X is the name of a TV movie that premiered on February 20th, 1996 on the Fox Network, and on this... The most important podcast in the history of mankind, as far as we're concerned. We will bring you more knowledge than you ever imagined possible about this mid-90s television event. Missed by most, remembered by some, cherished by us. But now, let me introduce you to our panel of mixed-up mutants on this bonus podcast tonight. Psychically manipulating your mind to appear in the form of officers Hootie and Blowfish, I'm Adam. And I'm Michael. And he doesn't know what his mutant power is called, but fireworks shoot out of his fingertips. It's Steven Sapellis. Hello, happy to be here. Oh, now, that is an understatement if I've ever heard one. <laughs> Ecstatic to be here. Ecstatic, baby. So for everyone who is listening, I have been involved in an email thread with these two gentlemen for several weeks now, building up the excitement for this cinematic journey we're about to go on. Buckle up. Yeah, I mean, it's worth, I guess, discussing why we are, in fact, so excited about our opportunity to talk at length about Generation X. Steve David, why don't you kick us off? Well, you know, growing up, I was one of those kids that was dying for any live action Marvel content. And I would read, you know, magazines and dream of seeing my favorite characters brought to the big screen. And it was so bad or good that in 1988, there was a Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade float with the Marvel characters wearing really cheesy, like Disney World style costumes. I made every member of my family watch it, including like my grandparents who were Greek immigrants and couldn't care less about <laughs> Silver Surfer and Doctor Strange. They just thought I was this maniac kid trying to make them w watch this nonsense. And so for years, I was waiting and waiting and waiting for stuff to appear. And around this time, I was still heartbroken over the loss of Fantastic Four, which was like my most anticipated movie of all time. So when I saw in the pages of Wizard that they were making a movie based on an X-Men comic, I just about lost my mind. So that's yeah. why I was so excited at this time period. And here's the thing that I've realized that I've sort of erased it from my comic book history. So the X-Men propaganda out there, I mean, the machine was working so hard to get every kid onto the X-Men train. And so even though Spider-Man had always been my lifelong love, we had so much going on in the world of X-Men, whether it was food tie-ins or a live-action commercial for a fast food channel. You know, one of them was Hardee's, actually, that had Mystique in it. Have you ever seen that one, Stephen? I have not. I've seen the Pizza Hut commercial with Cyclops yeah. and Jean Grey, but 
never seen the, the Mystique Hardy's commercial. Yeah, it's a pretty good one. But yeah, I mean, there was just everything X-Men everywhere you went. I mean, I bought X-Men fruit snacks. I actually have an X-Men toothbrush still in the package that I picked up at a garage sale a couple of years ago. Obviously, our listeners have heard me talk a lot about all the action figures I used to buy, but I was buying X-Force action figures, which was a comic I never read, but I was so into the hype, I just thought, this guy's cool, this guy's cool, it's X-Men, all right, I'm on board. And I even had in my room a lot of X-Men merchandise I kind of had blocked from my memory, which included a giant poster, like a door-sized poster that hung on my closet door which was every X-Men character at the time kind of stacked on top of each other. And I think it was actually, if you had the super deluxe fold-out gatefold cover of X-Men number one, on the flip side of the cover, I believe, was that image. In addition to a rogue poster, pretty popular uh, X-Men character for a young boy, so I definitely had that as well. And I just feel like there was so much to get you pumped for anything X-Men at the time. And so when this was coming out, I was so excited and I was like, wow, I can't believe we're finally going to see this. So for me, I was like, okay, what is it? Okay, I got to clear my schedule because I will be there. Of course, I'm sure I was very, very busy as a 14 year old. (laughs) (laughs) And Michael, where were you on February 20th, 1996? Lord knows. I don't, I don't even know. So so for all intents and purposes, this was your first viewing in uh, preparation this my, for the show. Let, let's call this my maiden voyage on this, on this uh, <laughs> epic. Steven and I, we were both there the night of the premiere for sure, vivid in our memories. Do you remember any other details surrounding that experience for you, Steven? Well, I remember three days before this aired, Project ALF which is the TV movie follow-up to the ALF season finale, which was, you know, four or five years before that, also aired. So on the same tape that I had Generation X, I also had Project ALF. So as a freshman in high school, this is like the biggest week of my life, I think. (laughs) An ALF TV movie and an X-Men TV movie in the same exact week, you know, it was a banner week for me. I'm sure. Now, I was in a situation where I recall our family VCR had actually broken down at this time. So I had to negotiate this whole deal with my buddy. I was like, okay, here's a blank tape. Okay, you got to be ready to go. I'm going to call you. And I did. I called him like five minutes before. I'm like, the tape is in the VCR, right? You're going to push record, right? <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. Don't worry about it, man. Come on. I was like, seriously, I cannot miss this. It may not air again. And it never did. So I was so <laughs> glad that I got that tape and I have just cherished it all these years. It's one of like those collectibles that has always, it, whatever move, whatever, has been in the most careful packaging so as to not damage that tape. But I think it's important as we get into the details of this film that we get an idea of the Marvel Entertainment history at this point. So we thought we'd provide a brief explanation of where Generation X fits into the Marvel movie timeline. So Michael, lay it on us. So here we have our Marvel live-action movie history. Aside from direct-to-video releases like The Punisher from 1989 and Captain America from 1990, not counting the unreleased Roger Corman Fantastic Four film and the highly publicized but ill-fated James Cameron live-action Spider-Man movie, Marvel had only dealt in animated and TV movie adaptations of their comics up to this point. 
an earlier version of Captain America, Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, Revival Films, were modest productions. Marvel's rival publication, DC Comics, had much more success with big-budget superhero films featuring Superman and Batman, thanks to being owned by Warner Brothers, yet DC were nowhere near the sales juggernaut that Marvel was in the realm of comics, a business that had been growing rapidly in popularity since 1990. X-Men books were absolutely the top sellers. If you were a kid in the 90s, being nerdy, X-Men was always something you... I could gravitate to them because they're weird. They have strange things. I got strange things. I get it. Totally. Anyway, according to the TV Guide interview, the X-Men titles alone accounted for 15% of all comic book sales in the United States. And so, Stephen, I know that you are a big fan of the Marvel productions in general up to this point and adjacent film. Are there any that you feel like we left off the list here that were something that was a Marvel production that maybe always stood out to you? Well, I mean, there were a few oddballs that we've talked about on Twitter and, and, you know, when we message each other constantly, there's the Power Pack pilot, which is just as, another weird, you know, adaptation of a kind of a third tier Marvel comic. Mm-hmm. There was Dr. Mordred, which was the full moon uh, movie where they basically didn't get the rights to Dr. Strange like they planned to. So they just used the same script and changed the names. You know, I think we were talking about like the near beer of Marvel movies. Mordred was one of those. Death of the Incredible Hulk has like kind of a Black Widow type character that I thought was pretty interesting. There wasn't too much. We, we were desperate. And, and Fantastic Four was like, to me, like the last great hope that I had. Yeah, definitely. That was, you know, publicized and ill-fated. But we may get back to that at a later date. <laughs> but I think it's worth mentioning then, Stephen, because, you know, we said there were already so many X-Men comic books on the market at the time. And then they decided, okay, well, we're going to introduce Generation X. And Stephen, I know you went on a little bit of an odyssey here and read a run of Generation X comics yourself in preparation for this episode so what can you tell us about the comic book history of the x universe at generation x at this time Marvel had created comics featuring young mutants in the X-Men universe before, with the New Mutants in 1983. But by this point, that team had grown up and morphed into X-Force, made popular by artist Rob Liefeld. So the field was open for a new crop of super-powered, angsty, hip, young punks. Generation X took the character of Jubilee out of the main X-Men books and had her join a team of all-new Teenage Mutants, which would be mentored by Sean Cassidy, a.k.a. Banshee, and Emma Frost, formerly the White Queen of the Hellfire Club. And so one little fun fact here I wanted to throw in, because at this time, prior to this book's release, in fact, Jim Lee, you know, had already famously left X-Men. He was off to form Image Comics and produce Wildcats and all those things, but he had more books in the pipeline, and he was developing his own young superheroes book called Gen X, which had already been advertised under that name in Wizard, in fact. But Marvel informed him that they had the copyright to Gen Generation X as a title, and so Lee altered his book's title to Gen 13, which ended up being hugely popular anyway. Just proved that it didn't matter. Is Jim Lee doing this book? Okay. You know, people were on board. But I'm curious for you guys at this time then, when Generation X came out, was it a book that appealed to you? Was it a book that you were involved in reading or just aware of? What about you, Michael? 
No, other than like Uncanny and just the regular X Men X Force, I didn't read Generation X. I always followed the staple. So if if Wolverine was there, if Cyclops was there, those are the guys I I followed because of the fact that I loved the animated series and they they were so heavily focused on the animated series. So I kind of stuck with the main titles of of X Men. And Steven. Yeah, you know, it was a book that I picked up a couple of issues of. I remember that first issue, like, was a very striking first issue. It had kind of like a shiny foil cover and, like, Chambers' fiery face was very prominent and very pronounced. And, and what I liked about it, and what also scared me about it, was how freakish all the mutants were. Like, by that point in the 90s, all the X-Men were so sexy and attractive and drawn so beautifully that you couldn't picture these people as freaks of society. They were like gods. And so when I saw Skin and when I saw Chamber, I was a little taken aback, like, like what's going on with these guys? These guys are, are really messed up. And so to me, it really brought it back to what the original point of X-Men was, with it, that they were these freaks and outsiders. And that's what I kind of liked about it. I was aware of it peripherally, a lot of it through reading about it in Wizard Magazine. Uh, and yeah, that's that's what I was drawn to about it. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit, I, you know, I was not a fan of the X books on a monthly basis. I was much more involved in X merchandise, so you know, I wasn't even reading the X Men or Uncanny or Wolverine or X Force or anything. Like, I I really wasn't picking up X books on any regular basis. So Generation X was just another one. I was like, oh, they put Jubilee on a different team, and then of course I saw the action figures in stores. I was like, oh, it's a big enough deal to get action figures. Wait, the White Queen is leading yeah. them? I, like, that just jumped out to me as something odd, but it just wasn't enough of a hook to get me involved on a monthly basis. So, Stephen, why don't you tell us what your takeaway was now that you've had a chance to really get into a full run of stories and understand this universe? What did you think? So I picked up the Generation X classic number one trade paperback, and it's it's really good. I, I really recommend it. You know, the first few issues are from the traditional X-Men books. It's got Uncanny X-Men 316 and 317, X-Men 36 and 37, Uncanny X-Men 318, and then Generation X number one through four. So it's kind of building up to it. And I really responded to specifically the Generation X comic book. I really like the artwork. It's really different for that time. It's more expressionist, which was kind of, you know, in, in the Toy Biz figure line. The Toy Biz figures for, for Generation X are completely different from the Toy Biz figures for, you know, X-Men, X-Force. They're very exaggerated. The hands are very large. You know, the heads are small. And that's kind of how the comic book is. It's a very artistically different comic book for that time. So it's it's really worth the read. I really like it. And I kind of wish I read it more when I was, you know, in middle school. Well, that's great. Yeah, no, and I've always heard really good things about the book. I've just heard that Scott Lobdell wrote it in such a way that you would connect with the characters, and it wasn't just an action book. You know, it was much more of that teen angst that everybody could relate to book, so I'm glad to hear that it, it stands up on, on all fronts. Yeah, yeah. It was a very popular book in its day, and so you know, if we start moving into our, our pre-production of this film... Tonight's movie, Generation X, will continue... How did it come to be even a project? How was this considered to be a movie before X-Men? We've talked about, you know, the, the previous scripts they had been working on in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, and how those just weren't measuring up. So the X-Men movie wasn't coming together. But the animated series had come out, was already in its fourth season by this point, had been hugely successful on the Fox Kids Network. 
Saturday morning lineup. And again, talking about we had toys and video games and the food tie-ins and these characters were 100% proven in pop culture. I mean, if you went to anybody, okay, Superman, Spider-Man, you know Wolverine? Oh yeah, I know Wolverine. He's the best. So then they start deciding, okay, this could be an actual potential film or TV series. What are we going to do with it? So they went to a guy named Eric Blakenly, who I don't think most people would know that name, but if you were a child of the 80s, you certainly know his creation, 21 Jump Street. Mm-hmm. Again, for those who don't know, 21 Jump Street, Michael, you want to give anybody a quick crash course? <laughs> oh, where do I want to even begin? 21 Jump Street. It's where Johnny Depp first arrived. It's where Richard Grieco arrived. Grieco! <laughs> it's, it's basically a show about a, a bunch of undercover cops that kind of look like teenagers that go into a high school to uncover like the the drug rings inside the high school and it, it's a fascinating show it's like i said I, i'm a big fan of richard grieco so anything with him he's i'm, I'm all in i always felt like it was kind of like uh, miami vice for teenagers it was kind of like it was flashy it was stylish and it was of its era and it, it just worked really well so but what's interesting is that eric blakenly said that he and stan lee had the same agent so they became friends over the years but never had like found a project to work on together and then suddenly they're both involved in producing the Generation X TV movie, and then Eric Blakenly is writing it. And he said he consulted both his teenage son, who was a big fan and super disappointed that Chamber was not actually going to be in the movie, and that he talked to Scott Lobdell, and they were very closely involved. There's actually uh, one or two, actually, particular pieces of Scott Lobdell's involvement we'll get to shortly. But basically, whatever he needed info on the characters, if he hit a wall, he would go to him. But he was told his original script was too close to X-Men lore. He needed to loosen it up and just let it be its own thing. Because it was too deep for us nerds. We would have loved it. But apparently everybody else would have been alienated. But he basically just said the premise was every teenager feels like a mutant kids can relate to that okay you know here they are in their weird situation so the film was produced by new world pictures steven can you tell us a little bit about some of the films maybe that were produced by new world pictures well new world pictures was obviously uh, roger corman's company and and they did produce the fantastic four movie as well as the, the Punisher movie. Right. And the Incredible Hulk TV movies. Yeah. So so they've been very involved with Marvel up to this point. In fact, the executive from New World Pictures, Bruce Salen, but he's also a producer on the film. And he talks about how he has like this back and forth. He's like, I'm a huge fan of the comics. As an executive, I need to not authorize any more money for this film. And yet, as a producer, I'm saying, yes, we want this to be the best it could be. And so it's really interesting. But he mentions that there are a Nick Fury and a Black Widow and possibly a Punisher movie at NBC in the works after this one. Was this the Nick Fury that is David Hasselhoff, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D.? correct, yes. Oh, that's a fantastic... We should talk about that in the future. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting because, like, he's talking about, yeah, we've got all these projects in development because Marvel hadn't done anything since the death of The Incredible Hulk, so it had been, like, four years since they tried live action again, and here they are saying, okay, now we may make more Generation X movies if this is a hit, or we'll turn it into a series, but they say all around the board, they're just like, we just wanted to make the best movie we could make to start with and then see where it goes. Wait, this is the best movie they could have made? 
<laughs> oh boy okay all right oh well, we're starting that's, early we're starting that's early. right yes the director of this film is a gentleman named jack shoulder who is probably best known for directing a nightmare on elm street 2 freddy's revenge truly the strangest of that franchise <laughs> and yet the uh influence of freddy krueger on this story and just even direct reference is very hard to miss can you grasp that you know like uh Freddy Krueger. You could have had X-Men versus Freddy Krueger. That would have been this movie. Shoulder mentions that he's like, I have a sick sense of humor, which was definitely a plus on this project. And it does. It has a little bit of edge to it. And are either of you guys familiar with any other work of uh, the journeyman Jack Shoulder? Didn't he direct The Hidden, where Kyle MacLachlan is is like an alien cop? Is that the premise of The Hidden? I've heard of the movie, and I've never seen it, because I get it confused with, like, The Hunger, which is a vampire movie. It's very different. Yeah. It's one of those generic title sci-fi movies of the uh, of the 80s. Yeah. yeah. But what is also interesting, and I'm interested to get your takes on this, both of you being in film production, but Shoulder said he decided not to film it like a traditional TV movie. You know, he wasn't going to do a lot of close-ups and things like that. He's, he's like, if we felt uncomfortable, we knew we were going in the right direction. It's going to be unconventional. In fact, like, go to the point of using special camera lenses. He's like, see, super widescreen, you know, fisheye, 10 millimeter lens it cost twenty five thousand dollars he was like super proud he was and he's like we shot every scene like at an angle like whether it was like you know batman 66 style dutch angles or whatever there was lots of colored lighting and strobe light effects and backlit features and all sorts of stuff like that but uh i'm just curious from your filmmaking perspective guys what did you notice (laughs) it does reek of batman 66 which is you know i love batman 66 but it does feel like someone who wasn't too familiar with comic books trying to build off what had come before there's a lot of flash I see in the way that those bright neon lights are just shining in some of the scenes. There's a lot of Batman forever in the lighting Mm -hmm. and and shot structure as well. So while I can see that he thought he was doing something very different, it does feel like very comic book of that time. I mean, this is there's a lot of flash in this. There's a lot of elements that are copied right out of Batman Forever. The lighting, the cinematography, the strobe lights all over the place. I watched it on YouTube and it was, you know, a downgraded, several step down import. And it was very, very grainy and dirty. But you could tell that it was shot on kind of like a fisheye lens or some sort of unconventional because it has this kind of almost like vignette feel around the edges of the frame which is a little distorting and i would have liked it in certain parts when they're like in real life or like in daytime they would have used a different more conventional like 35 millimeter lens and then when they go into the real out of this world stuff then use a lens that was more disorienting and that it would have felt a little bit more clean in the sense that the storytelling was was differentiating from where they were from one place to the next. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think there are things that we will defend about this movie and we will praise. And I just, yeah, I think there there's something to be said for how it's shot, 
just from the kitsch factor where it is like visually there's something going on but do you say it's high art absolutely not but you have to realize the real facts of this film is it was filmed in canada in just 24 days so basically three weeks they had a four million dollar budget but they didn't have a lot of time to spend to actually use the full budget in terms of getting shots set up and development it was very like we're ready to go let's go and shoulder says his direct quote is we're actually trying to do a feature film on one-sixth the budget and one-third the schedule there is criticism about this film those that know about it they're like oh yeah that terrible tv movie it's like well yeah but if you look at other tv movies of the time they probably actually didn't have this budget and they weren't maybe quite as ambitious they, they were doing as much as they could at the time they had to squeeze it all in and actually the film was initially going to release in january but then they moved it to february for sweeps week i read so they they just they had a lot of fox very much thought that this could be something and so they were out there promoting it you know bruce salas the talking was like oh yeah we got a lot of uh, magazine exposure they were in comic scene tv guide obviously wizard as steven mentioned and even the entertainment section of a st louis newspaper all of these i have in my hands at this time so i want you guys to know our research is pulled directly from these sources that were coming out at the time so we're giving you the hype direct from the era of the film's release and i do just have to mention that this uh, st louis post dispatch television magazine you guys remember usually like on sundays there would be like an entertainment section and a lot of times it'd be a little booklet and that's what this is and it says generation x in pink and yellow letters on the cover and it's a big picture of matt frewer who's the villain in this film which is so confusing because yes he is the biggest star but even he was not a huge star and you're talking about generation x there's this old middle-aged guy on the cover and it's just really strange and i i got it all excited because i've never seen this i didn't i didn't know it existed till just before we were recording and then i open it up there's no interview there's nothing in here it's just tv listings it's a tv guide and it has like one little blurb on the table of contents just showing there's a generation x tv movie this week it doesn't tell you anything about it to make you want to watch it so i was like oh you guys are not doing your job Matt Frewer is not getting people <laughs> to tune in. I'm sorry. I was a big fan of Matt Frewer at this point, so I was tuning in. Besides for the X-Men, also for Matt Frewer. <laughs> I'll, I'll defend Matt Brewer until my dying breath. But here's the other thing. So yeah, there, there was a lot of comics coverage. I mean, Comic Scene Magazine, of course, put them on the cover. And Wizard, like, these are very in-depth set visits. And so one of the fun facts I just want to throw at you guys is the TV guide section, they're talking about, okay, there's a scene where they're all climbing around, basically in their version of the danger room. TV guide was interviewing him during that scene. And Wizard was there on the 8th and ninth days of shooting. So they were there right at the beginning, but the comic scene interview took place during a boardroom scene where the main focus is everybody farting. Gentlemen, I anticipated your skepticism and have prepared a small practical demonstration. I took the liberty of visiting each of you in your dreams last night. While you slept, I made a small suggestion to each of you that I believe will demonstrate with a soupçon of humor the efficacy of this tool. At exactly 10 o'clock, each member of this board will have an involuntary gastric eruption. Is this supposed to be funny, Mr. Trash? <laughs> yes. And effective. Uh, 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 uh,
Gentlemen, I give you a quantum leap in mind control. Consider the possibilities. And so I was just like, wow, what did they think this movie was going to be if that's all they got to see that day? You know? <laughs> that, that, that seems a lot. It, it's a lot. It's, yeah. it's special. <laughs> but here's the thing, though. Also, you know, Marvel is trying to do their part, you know, the promotional machine there. And so there was a mutant generation sweepstakes. OK, so there was a contest that they were promoting where you could win prizes. And there was a fantastic poster that was sent to comic book stores that they could hang up so that their patrons could say, oh, wow, what's this about? I could win this and that and this. And so both Stephen and I, Stephen before me, he found this poster and it is gigantic. You want to describe it real quick for us, Stephen? Yeah, it actually I bought it for my birthday this year on, on eBay. It was my gift to myself. And I, I remember one of the first things we talked about, I sent you it just because I thought no one else would care that I bought this poster but you. So I, I, I sent it to you on Twitter. Uh, it's it's longer than most movie posters, but it's also really narrow. And on top, you have kind of the publicity still of all of the Generation X team with Matt Brewer's giant face looming over them. And then underneath, it's all the rules of a contest to win a Virtua Fighter arcade game which is plugged like what 10 times in this tv yes. movie which and if you feel kind of bad for virtua fighter because they are being sponsored or promoted by this evil corporation of this mad genius and it's like yeah we're gonna brainwash you to play our video games kids <laughs> and so in here there's the mutant generation sweepstakes there is a comic book ad that is probably the worst i've ever imagined for a sweepstakes because all it says is mutant generation sweepstakes sponsored by sega makers of sega saturn virtual fighter and then all the other sponsors in the prize pack so gargoyle sunglasses fleer skybox international mca records another fine planet production toy viz you know so it just has all these logos but it doesn't tell you how to enter it doesn't explain anything about the movie except at the bottom generation x world premiere original movie you know coming but it doesn't it doesn't explain it i was just like why would they put that in there without a full two-page spread which came later i I actually have an issue of Ultra Force that uh. I found that has the the full ad that shows it basically it's basically like a horizontal version of the poster that Steven described. The other weird thing about the poster is that Skin's, you know, mutant ability is correct on the poster but wrong in the movie. Like in the movie his arm stretches like, you know, Reed Richards, yeah. but in the comic book his hands grow like he has extra skin, so his hands grow and on the poster it's almost a photoshopped version of his hand just being made giant, which never happened in the movie no yeah i mean maybe that was marvel saying hey this is gonna be in a comic book shop kids are gonna know you gotta do it right yeah <laughs> so speaking of the prizes we got very excited about this so obviously the grand prize is a virtua fighter arcade cabinet but what's interesting is that it is awarded to both the winner and the comic book store owner who put up the poster so that's a pretty sweet deal i guess that's the real incentive right it's like if one of your customers wins the grand prize you win too i would love to meet the person that won this game yeah you know, that'd be kind of interesting I will tell you that I went around the internet and looked on eBay for a Virtua Fighter cabinets that were for sale, and I polled some people. I said, hey, did you by chance win this in a Generation X contest? <laughs> she responded, no. <laughs> That's amazing. What I will say is, I did actually have a good experience with Virtua 
insider because my dad's company owned the Anaheim Hilton over near Disneyland and in the bottom of their hotel they had an arcade and I remember when I would go to my dad's office I would obviously just take off with a couple bucks go play at the arcade you'd think he could have hooked me up with free play but no it was a leased <laughs> space he had no power there anyway but Virtua Fighter I remember when that machine came in and it was just like a revelation now it looks ridiculous but in comparison to Street Fighter 2 which was basically just animated characters and then Mortal Kombat had pictures of real people but they were super stilted and just stiff in that way but this one like they were fluid and yes they were all boxy uh, polygonal characters but it was still really cool to see at the time so when that popped up in this movie I was like I love Virtual Fighter yes (laughs) but aside from that to me even better was the first prize Generation X fun pack that went to 500 winners so somebody out there you had to have won this you know that those are pretty good odds tell us but included here was one Toy Biz Generation X action figure a Generation X pin by Planet Studios a Marvel Overpower card game starter deck a pair of Gargoyles brand sunglasses as featured in the film worn by Refrax or Kurt the Saturday Morning Cartoons Greatest Hits album and tie-in comic book and a limited edition Virtual Fighter comic book as well as an 8x10 cast photo in my mania in my excitement and in my preparation for this episode i have reassembled that generation x fun pack so (laughs) i have all of those items they are in front of me here and you will see the picture on social media if you didn't win it if i had known about this contest back in the day i would have entered and so this is just like i gotta make good on (laughs) the complete experience of watching generation x and loving it that's amazing 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 obsessive michael's shaking his head right now <laughs> we're we're friends so i'm i'm looking away from the screen so i don't give you the eyes of judgment <laughs> but steven you mentioned earlier just some of the entry instructions on the poster so as we close out on this section you want to tell the people what the questions were they would have to answer sure N- number one was who is your favorite gen x character for me, that would be Chamber. I don't know about you guys. But number two was, should Fox make Generation X an ongoing TV series or what? <laughs> uh, three, where do you buy your comics? Four, what is your city and state of that comic book store? Five, what is your name, address, phone, and age? That's so, pretty yeah. much the easiest contest to enter ever. Yeah. We got, we got these these trivia contests at Wizard, you know, <laughs> every month. They're, they're a little bit harder. This is just like, hey, do you want to see this movie? <laughs> <laughs> it was almost like getting a petition in a way. It's like, look at all these people who said that they watched. They care yeah. about it. Well, I, I like how your options are. Do you want to see this as a show or what? Or what? <laughs> <laughs> like, that come on. these attitude. All right. So, but for those who did choose to tune in, my Michael, why don't you give us that plot summary, this fantastic story that you experienced for the first time. So Emma Frost and Sean Cassidy are recruiting young mutants with superhuman abilities to their school for gifted mutants as a way of keeping them out of mutant detainment camps. Meanwhile, disgraced government scientist Russell Tresh is using advanced technology to implant suggestions in consumers' minds through their dreams. 
but truly desires to remove the latent telepathic gene from the brains of mutants in order to gain complete control over a dreamscape dimension. The team of young heroes battle their own insecurities while training to combat this evil threat and heroically save the day by working as a team and Generation X is born. Admittedly, Eric Blakely said, look, this isn't based on the comics. I read a lot of the comics, but I just tried to take the spirit of the characters and the concept of what they were going through. But this is, you know, in no way a storyline, you know, plucked from the monthly books. What was your first thought about this, Michael, when you realized it was going to be about dreamscape travel? So I went into watching this without doing any prior research. I did not read the notes. I went totally blind. I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this thing. You guys talk about this so much. I'm going to be like, I'll give it the old college try and say, maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised before we go into this in full length it it felt so much like they stole a lot of ideas of the brainwave device the riddler creates in batman forever and just said oh instead of it's through the television it's through your dreams and yeah and even the main character basically plays himself as if he's edward nigma and it just feels like it was that was a blatant copy of it which kind of took me out of it a little bit at times i like the fifth dimension ideas and going into like other realms and that kind of stuff wormhole dimensions that that stuff i find kind of cool i wish they would have flushed it out a little bit more and and spent a little bit more time explaining it they just kind of say oh we have this machine it does this magic poof okay great and i read one article in a book and i knew how to do it well so here's what uh, eric blakely the writer said he's like as he fashioned the script blakely felt the story was less about superhero chest thumping than it was an allegory about eastern versus western philosophy the two factions symbolized by the xavier school's headmistress emma frost aka the white queen and corporate maniac russell trash so he says Emma is a kind of Eastern metaphysic, while Tresh represents the Western deus ex machina techno-god point of view, which uh, Matt Frewer would go on to play <laughs> in Lot More Man 2. But yeah, so I just, I just thought it was interesting that very highfalutin, high concept, like you say, Michael, they really don't get into the technology at all. How it works, it just does. They figured it out. That's all you need to know. <laughs> Before we started this podcast, I watched this documentary about comedians who did acid on Netflix. And it basically sounds like this guy did a lot of acid before he wrote this thing because this is <laughs> totally out of this world. Like, I don't know who could have envisioned this. Like, it had to come from some sort of crazy trip that this guy took to write this. Eastern and Western philosophies? What? Oh, man. They did they really didn't flush that out in the movie or kind of landed on the cutting room floor. Holy moly. Well, you know, this is like a time when I feel like comic books were a dirty word. It was for, you know, nerds in basements. And so whatever this guy needed to take the job and, and cash the paycheck, whatever he needed to tell himself that this was some mashup of Eastern and Western philosophy, uh, I guess that worked for him. Whereas now, like, I feel, you know, most people would, would kill to write for a comic book movie or show. So times have changed. Yeah, and obviously, uh, like we said before, when he's explaining the concept of traveling through a, the dream dimension. I'll start from the beginning, okay? Real slow. Dreams are another dimension, Bobby. This machine allows me to step into anybody's dreams. You know how I use subconscious images in our... Uh, <laughs> advertising 
Well, with this machine, I can get directly into anybody's dreams and make suggestions like buy Slick Lips lipstick or play Virtua Fighter video games. Only this will be a thousand times more effective because I'm going straight into their brains. That's all you need to know. It's like, this exists, and people can do this, and apparently mutants could do it better than anybody. Go forward. <laughs> but I'm curious for you, Stephen, just overall, when you look at it like as a comic book film, whatever that means, does it feel like a superhero story to you in an overall concept, or is it something else? Well, you know, so this came out about seven or eight months after Batman Forever, which I was, you know, super duper excited about. I sold my bicycle to buy tickets for Batman Forever. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's how diehard I was about Batman Forever. And like Batman Forever and the Burton Schumacher Batman movies, this is so heavy on the villains, where the villain is almost half this movie. He's an over-the-top kind of character who kind of pushes the envelope, and his acting is larger than life. I mean, you know, Matt Brewer really goes for it. So to me, it fits into that aspect of comic book movies of the mid-90s. And also, it's kind of like the last gasp of the low-budget Marvel movies. I mean, it was two years after this that Blade came out. So to me, it was as though the era of the Dolph Lundgren Punisher and the Matt Salinger Captain America was coming to an end. And I remember just staring at that still in Wizard Magazine, and my mind was doing these mental gymnastics where I was just imagining this giant world of X-Men movies. It, it feels like it's pulling a lot from the X-Men animated series, where there's that in the first episode of the X-Men animated series, Jubilee is the character that brings you into the world. Uh, and this does that exact same thing. So I'm not sure how much they pulled from that or seen that. At least the opening, the first 20 minutes or so, it felt like almost a direct lift from the X-Men animated series. Yeah, and we should mention Avi Arad, of course, is also a producer on this film because any Marvel television or movie property, Avi Arad owned those rights. He would get involved. And so he did that same thing with Spider-Man 3, right? He's like, oh, we got to figure out how does Venom get to Earth? Okay, we'll just take what we did in the animated series, you know? So I, I think yeah. that just was his stock and trade. He's like, we already figured it out. Just use it. But I think it's worth mentioning, you know, because we're about to talk about the cast. And that is really where this movie shines is it's a character piece it's not an action film it's not like super sci-fi excitement all the time it really is about each individual character and i that arcade scene is just a it's a perfect way to introduce jubilee to us i don't know what that arcade is but it's like it looks like it's out of Hackers, that movie. Like, like mm -hmm. everybody's like in black lights. There's a bar, you know, like people are walking around smoking. They are, they're handing out drinks. Like, I don't know, but it's mostly teenagers that are there. But it's so, so 90s club atmosphere. And it's got the X-Men arcade game in a, yeah. like, a brief little cameo, which was so right? strange. It's so, it's so weird. It's right off the show. I'm like... Wait a minute, is that product placement or is it like I was it was it intentional? Like, hey, it, this is X Men, guys. Be attention, it's X Men back there. It's, it's weird. For the kids. <laughs> that was an incredible arcade game too. So yeah, it's great to see arcade. it. Yeah. So let's let's start getting into this. Let's start talking about the characters, and we'll we'll come back to that arcade scene as well because there's some great lines in that. But you know, we talked about Matt Frewer. I would say was the marquee name, right? Like he was the one that everybody knew. So he had obviously been Max Headroom back in the day. He had a very small part in Supergirl, one of my favorite movies growing up. 
she beats the crap out of him and then there was the the jerky neighbor in honey i shrunk the kids you know so that's probably i feel like that was his most high profile for our age group i love that movie yeah, definitely. And then just prior to this, he was in the miniseries of Stephen King's The Stand on ABC, which was like this huge prestige multi-night television event. I feel like that's where he was coasting off. Oh, he was, what was his name? Trash Man? I think trash his Can character Man, yeah. yeah. Trash, trash Can, Can Man. <laughs> and then if, if you stay in the comic book realm, at least, he eventually went on to play Moloch in the Zack Snyder Watchmen film. So that, that was a perfect casting choice in that case. Mm-hmm. Very small, but I remember when I saw that, I was like, hey, Matt Frewer's here. All right. <laughs> but you said you're a big fan, Steven. What did you know him from primarily? I mean, primarily, I think Max Headroom was my big uh, entry. Because, you know, Max Headroom was not just the TV show. He was everywhere at that time period. There were Coca-Cola commercials of Max Headroom. So, yeah, I think that was the big one for me was Max Headroom. You know what? Actually, I'm looking at his IMDb page right now. And another movie I remember him from was National Lampoon's Senior Trip. Do you remember no, that movie? Never saw that. I remember it coming out, but I never saw it. He plays the goofy principal. So he kind of had a, a little run there in the mid-90s. Were there any other appearances that you knew of, Michael? What do you think of Matt Frewer? You're like, oh, it's that guy from... I actually thought the next person on your list was more famous than he was because she was more recognizable to me oh interesting we've, we've already tiptoed around it but i am aware that the most common criticism of this film like literally whenever i read about it there are other podcasts who have covered it it may be a little less than positive light and it's always like that guy's just doing a jim carrey impression that's always the criticism that is lobbed at his performance Honestly, I was waiting for him to be like an alrighty then, or, or like, you know, during the fart scene, be like, do not go in there. Woo! I was I was waiting for that. I was like, oh boy, here we go. The fun fact is he actually also voiced Jim Carrey's character on the Dumb and Dumber animated series that was on CBS. Yes. So he played Lloyd, which is crazy. Yeah, so, so he, he was the knockoff Jim Carrey, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, though, he's got so many mood swings in it that you're just like, yeah, this guy is kind of annoying. Bobby boy, I've got things going on between my ears that'll put us in the global driver's seat. Now, if you'll excuse me, got to clear my head. Time to floss. And there's like, oh, no, no. Now he's now he's psychotic. Therapist once told me I could never be truly happy. I think that was a terse and irresponsible judgment, don't you? <laughs> I'm a classic. Low self-esteem, dysfunctional, overcompensating with grandiose delusions. In other words, I won't be happy until the psycho slut who humiliated me grovels at my feet and anoints me as her god! Well, he's, he's back and forth, and if nothing else, it's entertaining. It, it brings some quirkiness to the film that I think is, is always welcome. What he said was that he actually had ad-libbed a lot of his work. So he he was not planning originally to just come in and read the script. He's like, the way I work, I told them when I got the part, was that I like to improv. And Eric Blakely wrote the script. He's like, I've never let anybody change my words. But Matt was so good at it, I just let him go for it. you know. And, and he took the character to the next level. <laughs> That's how they saw it at the time. Yeah, well, he, he, he does do those Matt Frewer, Max Headroom pop culture references. And he does that a few times in this. And there were references that I don't even get anymore. 
where it's like, I'm not just a, a client. I bought the company. <laughs> the hair club for men. That's Cy Sperling. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Well, but for me, like the number one Russell Tresh line in this is I, cause I, like I said, my VCR was broken at the time. So I would record stuff on cassette, my favorite quotes. And one of the quotes was at the very end, he has skin, he's captured him, and he's ready to dissect his brain and get his gene that he needs to out of there. And he's about to put the blade to his head and he's like... You know, Angelo, I'm sure you think I'm some kind of really insensitive jerk, but I want you to know I've really been troubled by something and... I don't think I can continue without getting this off my chest. I really hate your hair. And I mean, for you to die looking so completely tasteless, it's, it's tragic. So I'm going to send you out with style. <laughs> I love like that switch. Like he's so evil. And then all of a sudden he's just like, I got to get this off my chest. <laughs> yeah. You, you also see his tongue a lot. He's always trying to like oh, wow. lick these young women. It's a little creepy. Yeah. And a lot of blinking. So much blinking. Yeah. The Barry Manilow albums. Oh, that was, there was, uh, there was a Barry White album is what he says. Oh, Barry White. That, Not Barry that made me very, looking at it from 2020 eyes. I was like, whoa, that you can't say that now the way they said it. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, this movie, was released on VHS in the UK. So so it, it internationally it got a release as, you know, a movie. And there's an alternate version of the film that has cussing in it. So so like there's the broadcast version and there's a scene where they're dropping F bombs that was cut entirely from the, the TV version. Yeah, it was awesome. <clears throat> I fing nuts. That was the scariest thing I have ever felt in my entire life. I cosmically my f***ing pants. And then just a couple little lines here or there that were just too hot for TV. But there's a line in there where he's tried to get Skin to go break him out of an insane asylum where he's been stuck. And so mm-hmm. he pulls Skin's little sister up in the dream world and he says, You think I'm just here to be your dream grid guru? I want out of here! I want to hit the big time! I can't break into jail! I want my money back! You will help me, or I'll jump into your dreams and give you eight hours of hell every night. And I'll do the same to your honey-skinned girlfriend. If that doesn't work, how about I mind-rape this sweet little sister of yours? You're like, huh? And I thought that was in the UK cut, you know, the international cut, but it's not. That was on the broadcast television version. Oh really? my gosh. Yeah, like it got really dark. I mean, remember the, the director said, I have a sick sense of humor. Well, he was doing this. It was, he says that, then he licks that girl's face. Oh God, that was so weird. <laughs> so the, gross. The version I saw on YouTube had all the cussing and had all of that. And I was like, how did this get on television? I didn't know that it was, there was there was a UK version as well. I was like, oh my goodness. How did this happen on Fox? Like, they just bleeped what? it out Jerry Springer style, you know? I guess so. 
So, Russell Tresh's arch-rival in this universe is Emma Frost, played by Finola Hughes, and she is not an actress I was 100% familiar with until I started kind of looking through her IMDb, and I was like, okay, she was a soap opera actress on General Hospital, she was on All My Children, she did that for years, she was on Blossom, so I think she was the dad's girlfriend for several Mm -hmm. seasons, so I vaguely remembered her from there, but what I know her probably most from is as the antagonist to John Travolta in the sequel to Saturday Night Fever called Stayin' Alive. Does anybody know this? Directed by Sylvester Stallone. Yes. Of course I remember this. How would I not know this? My dad (laughs) had it on CED video disc growing up. And I just remember the big sweaty John Travolta face with the headband on the front of it. So she's in there and she's just like the stuck up dancer. Doesn't think he belongs there, you know. But then also, if you talk about the comic book realm, she voiced Superman's mom. She was Lara on the 90s Superman animated series. Hmm. So so she had her moment there. But you said you thought she was famous, Michael? What's your connection to Finola Hughes? I would guess I would look back and I would say Blossom was probably, I have a younger sister who watched Blossom all the time and I watched it too because it was on, you know, but yeah, I, I mean, I always thought that she, I recognize her from, from that. And I guess also my mom watched General Hospital and I knew her from that. And, uh, you know, so, but I was like, oh, okay, I know her. She, she was more recognizable in my opinion. Now looking at her IMDb, I also remember her being on Charmed. Yes, oh. I watched that a little bit here and there. So don't, don't judge me. I watched it a little bit. I mean, it's got Alyssa Milano on it. Come on. That's right. Go. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no judgment for me. Yeah. Yeah, judgment freeze out in here. Well, so speaking of the voice, though, Michael, it, it should be mentioned that Eric Blake and Lee, he was the producer on it. So he had casting clout there to decide who he wanted. And he says, Blake and Lee knew the audience would expect an outrageous looking blonde in the role of Emma Frost. But he insisted to the powers that be that whoever they cast couldn't have a stupid voice. <laughs> Which I find hilarious that that, that oh was his God. way of looking at it. She can't have a stupid voice, guys. Come on. Because he says, I didn't want some woman who sounded like Melanie Griffin no matter how large her breasts were or how blonde her hair was. Fadola is a brunette with an English accent, which doesn't follow with the comic character, but she had command. Her presence was true to the character. She was the strongest actress, and we needed a powerful person. I'm hopeful that Generation X fans will see that. And I personally think she's great casting. I think she fits with what I would expect. Mm -hmm. I I don't like her wardrobe, but I thought she was great casting. But that's direct from the comic, though. What do you mean? Some things don't transcend from paper to the screen. They could have probably... tweaked it a little bit and so you know what's funny is for some reason i get her confused with jane seymour dr quinn medicine mm-hmm. woman but they don't really even look alike but just at that time i remember thinking is that dr quinn <laughs> like, no <laughs> but yeah so there are actually quite a few references to the x-men comic book universe in the film you know the writer eric blakenly said i got deep into it initially in that script as we mentioned but but then he had to pull back, but some of it remains. And one of those things is related to Emma Frost having led a group called the Hellions. Like, there's a whole scene where she's being real harsh and punishing all the members of Generation X, and so Banshee's like, We can't have a school without students. And you can't have any discipline unless you demand it. You're a fine teacher and a hard taskmaster. These children got a tough road to hoe, and a little compassion on our parts won't kill them. Yes, it will. I've seen it before, Sean. You can't keep blaming yourself for the lots of the aliens. 
They were my students. I mean, maybe if I trained them harder, they'd still be alive. Oh, Ian. No one can see into the future. Not even you. And that's it. Like, you know, there's not a flashback. There's not anything. And if you weren't deep into reading New Mutants comics, Emma Frost apparently, through the Hellfire Club, had her young mutants that she was training, and they would fight the New Mutants. You know, so it was kind of like that rivalry between them. And then just before Generation X happened, my understanding is there was a group that was killing mutants, and they came in and took out the Hellions. And so then that was the end of that. And Emma felt super guilty about that. And Xavier helped turn her basically to his side. And that's where she went from being a villain to being, you know, someone who had a little bit of an edge, but was on the side of right, as we see it as X-Men fans. Did you ever catch that in your watches, Stephen? You know, I never did. But, you know, to build off of that, Banshee also started as a villain and eventually became a hero. You know, Banshee does make a couple of references to the team and to the costumes. And so it kind of like got my mind wandering. You know, there's also a scene where Refrex wears a Wolverine t-shirt. So I just started thinking, you know, if this went to series, would there have been flashbacks where you would have seen Emma Frost with the Hellions and you would have seen Banshee with like the giant size X-Men team in the, you know, the green and yellow outfit, you know, they could have gone to a variety of different places showing that like the, the history of both Banshee and White Queen. Yeah, to me, that seems the most likely route. It seems like they definitely would have brought in members of the Hellfire Club as part of Emma's past. And then we probably would have gotten Black Tom Cassidy. <laughs> oh, you know, that's me brother. Yeah. And I think ultimately they wouldn't have probably used any of the higher tier characters but they might have brought in you know one or two of the the second string new mutants or somebody like that to freshen up the show or my mvp of this film is the other director of i think in the comics it's like the massachusetts academy or something like that i'm trying to remember what they call it here they are the xavier institute But Jeremy Ratchford as Banshee, a.k.a. Sean Cassidy, he is a guy I don't know from anything but this, and yet I love him so much in this movie. Because apparently he was in Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood movie, Western, haven't seen it. I have seen many, many times Short Circuit 2, which he apparently plays somebody named Bill, and I have no idea who that is. I know that movie backwards and forwards, so i got to watch it again. But he also, he voiced Banshee on the animated series. Your powers never could hurt me, little brother. Nor could yours hurt me. Fists usually settle things. I, my fists. And apparently he had auditioned for the role of Wolverine, and then they liked him so much, like, you're not right for that, but we're going to bring you back as Banshee, which I think is cool, because he's Canadian. You know, he's not actually Irish, in case you oh, couldn't tell. Really? <laughs> yeah, That's a bummer. Accent, right? It takes me out of it. That's pretty good, man. I was, I was, <laughs> they got an, an Irish guy. Um, he Honestly, he was, I thought he was one of the best parts of the show. Um, he's funny, but he's also entertaining. I've seen Unforgiven a couple times. I don't remember him from that movie, but I did kind of recognize his face a little bit. There's a lot of recognizable 
faces in the show. They don't realize who they are till much later. Yeah, well, he seems to be more of like a character actor, so I can see how he would disappear into the role. But you can tell by the interviews that he is super into being in a comic book movie. Like, they even say, like, he's a Wolverine, he's an X-Men fan. And it says here that afterward, Ratchford, whose character is a sonic screamer, able to send people tumbling away with the sheer power of his voice, explains the key to playing a larger-than-life character like Banshee. It's the posture. You've got to have that superhero stance, he says, placing arms akimbo and thrusting out his chest a la George Reeves of the old Superman series. Frewer walks by and chimes in, and you have to have a cod piece, he cracks. Or maybe a whole cod. <laughs> oh, Matt Frewer, you jokester. <laughs> but yeah, when I watch this movie, Banshee is 100% like the most fun. Like the banter between Emma and Banshee is, I feel, what makes this movie. You are one heck of a soft touch, aren't you, Sean, my boy? Boy, with helpless women, which leaves you out your mind, which... Play match with me, Sean. I could have you fetching frisbees like a train. Em, um, I've seen you in action, so I know you're good at what you do. But I'd stick to manipulating weaker minds just to keep your record perfect. I would want to tune in, if this was a series, just to watch them on a weekly basis. Yeah, and that, that's straight from the comic books as well. That, that was kind of their banter in the comic books. So that was that was a pretty direct lift. But like when I I would record these quotes from the film on audio cassette, I would over and over just listen to. Oh, 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 but yeah so he he's a real bright spot in the film and i think the next bright spot though is a special friend of ours who had this to say hey it's heather mccomb apparently adam michael and steven are about to geek out over the 1996 generation x tv movie where i played jubilee remember i'm a bad girl and i've got some nasty mutant tricks so just back off (laughs) just kidding have fun guys lots of love jubilee just blew us a kiss and wished us well this is a big deal (laughs) (laughs) my 15 year old heart is beating very heavily (laughs) seriously it's one of those things that's like okay yes maybe we went on cameo and maybe we paid to get that to be a part of this show but it makes it no less thrilling okay because she seemed to be having a great time with it and then we were bringing it up you mean she doesn't really love us that that was a lie wait you paid her (laughs) i didn't Heather McComb, I know, is a very popular character over in the Sapellus household. So what can you tell us, Stephen, about your connection to Heather McComb? Well, it's funny because recently I I rediscovered a tape that I had of the old weird science TV show that was on USA in the 90s. It was the best show. And it's like no one talks about that show anymore. And there's an episode called Quantum Wyatt where Gary gets a job at a comic book store. And she's the cool girl that works at the comic book store. And I'd completely forgotten about this. And it must have worked its way into my subconscious at some point in my life because now all i write about are cool girls who work at comic book stores <laughs> my wife annie is a big fan of her on the x-files she's in a, an episode called d hand i believe it's pronounced so that was another big role for her and then of course stay tuned i mean stay tuned <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, she's unrecognizable because she's like 13 or something there. Like, totally different look, not as trendy 90s. But yeah, like, that's a personal favorite of mine as well. Like, you know, I have it on VHS. I got it on DVD. Like, I just, I love that movie. And yeah, when I found out, I was like, that was Jubilee. Like, I just figured it out like two or three years ago when I was rewatching. I was like, huh? But I, you know, the X-Men connection for her was she's also got a part in Apt Pupil, which was directed by the eventual live-action X-Men movie director, you know, Hollywood scumbag, Brian Singer. <laughs> so I was actually surprised because, they, you know, there was a Jubilee they cut out of those movies. If Brian Singer had worked with her, why didn't he bring her back, let her play the role? He, he was too busy being a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure he had not even seen Generation X. I'm sure he had no concept. Yeah, maybe. She is so much fun in this movie. Like, if there's any lead actress or actor in the film, it's, it's basically, it's a Skin and Jubilee movie, and everybody else has has stuff going on around them. I'm Jubilee. This is Angela. So what's your thing? What's my thing? They want to know what kind of mutant powers you have. Oh, um, I don't know what it's called, but, um, fireworks shoot out of my fingers. It's called thermodynamic emission. Kurt has something similar, and that comes out of his eyes. She just has that feeling. She's got that nasally just kind of attitude. First of all, her opening line is the best because this dude comes up to her and he's like, Are you really going to take off? Uh-huh. Home sucks, man. Freedom sucks. Like, that is that's such, like, a 90s, like, yeah, counterculture statement. Oh, totally. So, yeah, so in that arcade scene, I know, Stephen, you mentioned that it is very much a Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Danny Cooksey, Edward Furlong type of situation. Yes. When Jubilee is playing Virtua Fighter. But I believe that you had a connection to a character that is just, you know, in it very briefly, but he definitely has the, the 90s look to him. Yeah, so there's an actor named Tyler Labine, and he he's credited in this movie as Mallrat, <laughs> which is, you know, the most 90s term you can come up with. Uh, and yeah, he's basically playing, you know, the Bobby Budnick role. And so... So in 2007, my friends and I had sold a sitcom pilot to CBS and, you know, they were casting this pilot. They were looking for, you know, guys in their 20s. And one of the guys they were really high on at that time was Tyler Labine, who was on a show called Reaper, which was on the CW, which was like Kevin Smith had directed the pilot, I believe. Well, speaking of Mallrat. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the, the funny thing was that the executive that we were working with did not know Tyler Labine's name or just kept forgetting it. So he kept calling him the fat kid from Reaper. And that was his term for Tyler. It, he just kept saying, oh, yeah, they're really high on uh, the fat kid from Reaper. And then uh, ironically, like I think it was seven years after that, they finally did shoot a pilot. By that point, I was no longer involved. And the show was very different from the first show that we'd sold. But they did cast Tyler Labine. So he was still hot at CBS in in those seven years. He had the look. Yeah, but, you know, he's not just the fat kid from Reaper. He's also in uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. He's built quite the career. I, I honestly thought that she should have had a bigger role in the show. Like, she's obviously the main character, but she needed to be in more scenes because every scene she's in, she steals it. She's one of the most entertaining parts of the whole show, and I wanted to see more of her character. And they had too many characters that they threw in in the first episode that you kind of they had to like segment everybody's time and I've liked to have seen her more. I completely agree. She, she's the highlight of this movie for me. And 
Well, I think one of the things that I really love about this movie is that if I, you know, I was 14 when this came out. So Heather McComb was a couple years older than me. And so when I thought about who would be the X-Men when I was a kid like that, it would have been that generation of actors. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's, you know, I wish that it happened like they'd made an X-Men movie in the 90s with, you know, kids who were a couple years older than me. So I think that's one of the big draws for me is is that's why I feel so nostalgic for it is because of that casting. And I just have to also mention my, my favorite line of hers. Just the line reading is fantastic. So she gets broken out of jail and Banshee and uh, Emma Frost, they have gone in using Emma's powers and they're like, Can I help you? Officers Hootie and Blowfish with the Bureau of Mutant Affairs. We're here to transport the mutant to a rehabilitation center. Officers Hootie and Blowfish from Mutant Affairs. Here to transfer mutant. And then at the end, they're leaving outside. She's like, guys, you know, thanks for that bizarro escape routine and all that stuff. She saw right through your psychic shield, Em. She's good. That's right, Officer Hootie. (laughs) No, I gotta go. Uh, no, you don't, darling. You're coming with us. Look, I'm sure you guys got some great schemes in mind, which is why you nabbed me, all right? But I'm a bad girl. And I've got some nasty mutant tricks, so just back off. <laughs> I love that nasally officer hootie. So good, so good. That scene and the part when they're, like, at the police station and, like... Thanks for coming down. This happens every fire, Miss Carnival. I'm sorry we've caused you so much trouble. No biggie. I just need you to identify them. They wouldn't give us their real names. That one says he's Eddie Vedder. That one says he's Eddie Van Halen. That one says he's Eddie Munster. And that one says she's Edie Brickell. That's right, officer. All those names are correct. Thank you, ma'am. We can go now, can't we? Sure. That made me laugh too. Those are probably my two of my favorite scenes in the whole show. Was was those two moments? It was, I was like, I love Hootie the Blowfish. Yes, they wrap with Hootie the Blowfish. <laughs> So one of the uh, casting choices of this film that they had to go with was the character of Mondo in Generation X is a big Samoan guy. And they literally state, for lack of an able Samoan actor, they decided to go with an African-American actor who was a child actor who worked quite a bit. His name is Bumper Robinson. And he was in a lot of 80s sitcoms. But he actually appeared in another comic book TV movie, The Spirit, with the Flash Gordon actor Sam J. Jones. That was another like pilot movie that aired in the I think it was like late 80s did not get picked up and then he actually has continued in the Marvel Comics world he voices the Falcon in lots of animated series and video games for Marvel so he's a very popular I think he does War Machine every once in a while too but Mondo man I mean Bubba Robinson brings a little bit of attitude to this the Generation X team itself is culturally diverse you know you got, got a Latino guy you got an African American American guy, you know, technically Jubilee was supposed to be Asian, you know, not so much in this version, but he has also just the funniest lines in this movie. I mean, because he's just like this guy who's full of himself. He's not kind to Skin and Jubilee when they show up. For those who don't know Mondo's power, Steven, do you want to explain that? He can basically, if he touches stone, he has the strength of stone. Like, he can absorb the power of whatever he touches. Yeah, and unfortunately, also at Jed 13, Grunge does exactly the same thing. Oh, really? Yeah, they were already so closely linked, and then there's that. But to me, I love, there's a scene where they're all getting to know each other like basically in their dorm room you getting pepper nutrition man 
What's it look like? Boom, ping, bing. All right. Looks like Schwarzenegger don't got to worry about you. Yeah, but he better. Because I can become as solid as anything I touch, man. Wood, rock, steel, it's all good. What happens when you eat jello, is it? <laughs> man, you know I don't like jello. I know you don't like jello. That was, it was very funny. You're still big. I, you're huge. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he is great I, for, for me he's my second favorite you know of the generation x team cast i think he's really charming he's really likable even that weird scene in like the diner when he has a milkshake uh drinking contest yeah just an eating contest with a football guy. player yeah, yeah. It was so weird it was, <laughs> it was kind of interesting though it was fun it was it was a little confusing at the time he was just trying to show like who's more masculine and i wasn't sure you guys never did that as uh, as teenagers you never had milkshake drinking contests with strangers <laughs> across the way at a, all, all the time <laughs> shove a whole piece of pizza in your a mouth small, and it's like got like a 50s doo-wop song on the on the jukebox what was it with like the 80s and early 90s that they thought that everything was still the 50s like all oh, the yeah. executives and people writing it was like yeah it's it's the 50s that's what teenagers do they wear letterman's jackets and they go they go to the sock op yeah <laughs> but at the end he also has a line that i don't really get but he basically, like, when they're all battling and they're all taking turns, taking a swipe at Russell Trash, he's like, party over here, Jonas! I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> but I love how he says it, but I don't get it. I don't know if that's a biblical reference or yeah, what. But, yeah, I'm not sure either. <laughs> but yeah, Mondo is great in this. Next up, though, is the character of M, or Monet this is an actress that didn't have a whole lot of credits to her name in getting this. You know, she was on an episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, she was on the Sweet Valley High series, if you guys remember that, with the twins on Fox. I could sing the song, but I'm not I'm not going to <laughs> in a public forum. It's too late at night for me to listen to this song. <laughs> but Amaryllis is the actress's name, like Cher. You know, she has no last name. And she's got a lot of attitude as well, which is very fun. I mean, like, that's the thing. All these characters are so engaging and interesting that you would have wanted to tune in I feel on a weekly basis to see what they'd be up to because she's like there explaining her power set how she's basically perfect you know Jimmy Lee's like oh yeah what was your special gift speed reading and humility <laughs> little girls this sound like bragging to you but she doesn't have a whole lot to do in the movie but she has a great background sequence the, the carnival yeah yeah and she gets this harem of guys <laughs> that at first they just think she's hot and then she starts like crushing all the strength games at the carnival and they just start following her around like puppies and that is hilarious <laughs> like i just love that whole deal do you guys have any particular thought on amaryllis as m i thought she was really good the big problem that i had with a lot of the characters in the show and in hers in particular was they didn't really flush out their powers all that well and and like establish them they just kind of like told you in, in a by the way kind of thing i was like so is she super strong is she super smart i didn't get it like you know it was kind of confusing like okay she can swing a sledgehammer and and you know hit the bell but she's also super smart like they didn't explain her power set which which bummed me a little bit but as an actress and as a as a character in the show she was very interesting and again i would have liked to see more of her uh, as well this is it's not a big superhero action epic like they really don't use the powers you're right nor explain them <laughs> <laughs> for me you know we, we kind of hit on this basically the recasting of jubilee 
as a Caucasian actress. Obviously, that's the elephant in the room when people talk about this movie as X fans. But I, I did really like how diverse the cast was. And you didn't see that a lot on television at this time in history. I mean, there, there this was... Yeah, think of Melrose Place and 90210, yeah. all white people. <laughs> but I think they make up for it by casting such an ethnically diverse cast. Like it, it's really, it would have been really spectacular to see this go to series and to see that developed in a, in a real way. Now, I have a quick story here because I don't know how many of us on the panel tonight have had run-ins with any of the cast members. But in about 1998, my dad's cousin was coming to town with her daughters who did gymnastics competitions. So they had come to California for a tournament and they were there. So they're like, yeah, you should come cheer them on. So anyway, so I'm in these bleachers in this gym and watching, you know, these floor routines or whatever else. And so I take a break and they had some sort of like door prize giveaway contest. Sign your name on this list and then we'll announce the winner, you know, at halftime, whatever, whatever it's called, the gymnastics. And so I get there and I see two names above where I just signed amaryllis no last name everybody signed first name last name and at amaryllis i'm like there's no way there's anybody else in the world who is just signing amaryllis that is not the actress from this movie where is she she has to be here i'm the only person that knows she needs to know how awesome generation x was so i'm looking around and i i didn't see her at first so i went back to my seat and then as i sit there i see her walk down in front and i'm like em is walking by there she is you know i was kind of packed in i couldn't get out and i was hoping i was gonna run into her in the hall or something and i never got to it. that's like this missed opportunity of my life i'm like if i could have told her how great it was because even in the in the interviews she's one of the few people who says that she would be willing to return obviously she didn't have a lot going on but i was like ah so she was into it she wanted to be a part of that so that's my amaryllis sighting story <laughs> What Adam doesn't really know is that she called security to get her escorted out of there. She, she saw some strange young man following her around and the look lurking in, in the shadow. She's like, this must be about Generation X. Oh, I, I must get out of here. <laughs> Now, next up in the cast, which is as much as Jubilee is like the most recognizable X character, I do believe that if you want to say if there was a lead lead, it is uh, Justin Rodriguez as Skin or Angelo Espinosa. I mean, it's all about him, right? He's the one who wants to have the relationship with the town girl, but he's getting picked on by her friends. You know, he's the one that is trying to go in the dream dimension to escape. He's, you know, you're following him. He's the one that Russell Tresh blackmails to go get him out of there, and he's the ultimately the one they have to rescue by the end so he really is like the star of this film but he hadn't done a whole lot rodriguez who plays skin got the role after the producer saw his work in a recent episode of fox's new york undercover finding him was a long involved process according to blakenly quote we had read everybody when we saw augustine's tape we had even expanded the search beyond latino actors we couldn't find a kid who had the magic we rolled the dice and cast augustine on blind faith without an audition two days before shooting was to begin in, and it worked out beautifully. He really is skin. The film god smiled upon us. <laughs> he really is a sincere presence. I think that's what comes through the most. Do you guys have a favorite moment with skin in this film? Uh, I'm, ra I'm racking my brain right now. Hold on. <laughs> Let me think. Honestly, 
I felt he was the weakest point of the whole show. Really? Yeah. He didn't sell it for me all that much. I felt like a lot of his stuff was kind of shoehorned in, how they kind of weaved his story together like that. I felt that it should have been more about Jubilee and less about him. He wasn't the strongest part of the show. Yeah, I I agree with a lot of that. And and I think his best scenes are with Heather McComb. Like there's that scene when they're arguing about who's going to go into the dream dimension. And she's really strong in that scene, and he bounces off of her very well. I mean, because for me, like, obviously the main thing about him is the fact that he is the one probably with the most special effects involved. And we see his power used most often throughout the film, right? So, like, we talked about the opening, his arm skin is stretching, you mm-hmm. know. And eventually, when he breaks out trash, he does the Mr. Fantastic thing, like you said, Stephen, where his yeah. hand goes up over rail and pulls him up onto a second level. Yeah. Is that the very end? And he is the one that kind of saves the day. He's been trapped. Tresh is going to operate on his brain. And then at the end, they're all fighting Tresh, and they seem to be getting the upper hand on some level, but not any one of them or even them combined does it. He is the one who goes in and wraps his arms around Tresh, and then they fall into oblivion. That's the big ending as his hand comes back up through <laughs> the dream <laughs> dimension, and it's back, and he's there. So, but this is what I found so fascinating. This is why I love these magazines, because how do you guys think they did those effects? Like stop motion, I almost would venture a guess it would be like that, like almost like a claymation kind of a thing. Or Okay, what do you think, Steven? To me, it kind of looked practical. Like it looked like on-set effects. Not unlike what was in the Fantastic Four uh, Corman movie. <laughs> A little step up from that one, uh, I think. Up. Sure. Well, so, but that—that's what I found fascinating because, yeah, I always assumed it was just all CGI, and it does look a little cheesy. But for the era, it was as good as you could get done, right? And they said it actually was practical, at least in that final scene, because they said it wouldn't work if they had just tried to do it all CGI. So they had to do a cast of his body. They had to actually create the extended arms that wrapped around Matt Frewer, and then all they did was enhance it with CGI. So I think when you watch that final scene, that just makes it feel even funnier. That he and Matt Frewer were just attached with this arm thing, wrapping them together. But for those who are just like, oh, it's crappy CGI, it's like, no, there were some practical effects in there. So here's the one thing that I wanted to point out with this ending in particular. So they're in this dream dimension and, you know, the whole second and third act revolves around Skin and Russell Tretch. Here is the big letdown for me that, that they missed this opportunity so many times that it went really, really easy. When they fall to the abyss and then Skin comes back up, what should have happened was Russell Tresh should have, like, implanted his mind inside of Angelo's as if he's, like, living through that body now. And it's like he becomes the villain of the series because the bad guy's inside his head. Hmm. And, and they miss that opportunity several times where, like, Tresh is in the hospital bed, but his mind is trapped in somewhere else. He should have been inside Angelo's head the whole time, like, playing Puppet Master. And that was a huge missed opportunity in the show, I feel but, like. But is that the powers as they explain them? Like, my understanding, I mean, I guess he could implant the suggestions, but I think what they said is mutants are immune. Steven, do you recall hearing that? Or did I just write that myself? No, thinking. It's, uh, no, I, I don't recall... Because when Jubilee sees Tresh's face in the Virtual Fighter machine at the beginning, she's the only one who sees it. So she yeah. just sees it as a blatant face saying, Play more, Kitty.
But she does. She does play more. <laughs> so you think she was controlled? I, I that's what I, I, that's, I think that's what so. Because huh. like she, like her hands started moving super fast along the game board, and then the fireworks. Uh, but but then up. why would Tresh have to you know threaten Angelo's family? You know what I'm saying? Like if he could just control him. Bad writing. <laughs> Possibly, but I always felt like the mutants were not able to be affected because they could also travel through the dream dimension. So technically, they could do the same thing that Tresh could do. They're just not using the power for evil. Therefore, they couldn't be overcome. But there Hmm. was also a point where banshee mentions or or one of the mentions that he may have already unlocked the x gene in his head Mm -hmm. from working on this so he could be a mutant now and again this this story is out there cuckoo bananas but (laughs) but they could have literally said anything like hey he's inside of his head he's in the dream world but he's inside of his mind it's a fifth dimension no one's going to question it if he embeds himself in and then it almost gives angelo like a split personality disorder where he's kind of been controlled partially by this villain and that could be the whole first season right there how do you get his get him out of his head there you go you got it all figured out michael (laughs) It might have all, wasn't there like a contractual thing? Because I think in that article it said that Matt Brewer wasn't sure if he would come back. Right. Yeah, he well, he basically just said, if they did make it a series, I'm not sure because I wouldn't want the quality of the script to dip. <laughs> but but to him, like, he was making up all his lines anyway. So I think that was his real negotiating card would be, is like, do I still get to improv all my lines? Then I'm in. <laughs> but yeah, so next up, now this is what was interesting. I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, we're talking about the Generation X team here and there are several characters who are not featured in this film. You know, we had Chamber, who is not in this because he was too FX intensive. Yeah. Fiery middle and, and jaw, you know, it's like all of that stuff is just not gonna happen to the point that, you know, Eric Blakenly said his son was terribly disappointed that wasn't gonna be the case. Other characters like Sync, they just said Mondo already absorbs the power of things, so it just seemed redundant. We didn't really see what we could do with him. Same with Husk. They're like, with Husk, that's just gonna be too difficult. You gotta show if somebody could rip their face off and then they gotta have new characteristics underneath like we just didn't have time for that and they said plus skin already deals with an issue of skin so that also seemed redundant which i found funny i was like sort of but no like you didn't put any prosthetics on him he doesn't you know occasionally his skin stretches your skin stretches for what <laughs> but the two characters that were created here are Refrax and Buff. So these are characters that you would first say, okay, why did they come up with this Cyclops clone and this Buff girl who doesn't really look that buff, except for one scene where it's obviously not her. Um, <laughs> but uh, Blakely said he was not the one who created them. It was actually Scott Lobdell. Huh. They consulted on it. So if you want to blame anybody, blame the writer of the comic. So I think that's important to realize that it wasn't just a cheap move by these Hollywood people, you know. <laughs> but what's your guys' thought on Kurt, on Refrax? Yeah, he has some weird things where he keeps talking about how he's going to look through the girl's clothes. Yeah. And he mentions this a lot. A lot. <laughs> That's right. I can uh, melt glass and see through pantyhose. Ooh, change day. Can't see through your clothes. Eh, well, not yet, but I'm almost there. That was a little strange. Doesn't um, age well, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't age well. To go back to your hacker's reference earlier, he looks exactly like Johnny Lee Miller and Hacker. Oh, yes. It's, it's almost exactly 
that same style. So again, that makes me like him a lot because I really like that era of, of you know, filmmaking. Uh, and yeah, I thought it was cool. I, I thought it was cool to see a Cyclops type character uh, at that time. We had never had a live action Cyclops. So it was pretty neat for me to see even a ripoff of Cyclops. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a, I could see where they could build off of that character. Agree with all, all those points. The, the problem that I had with this character was that his powers were seemed to be a little bit not fully flushed out. Like he can he can shoot lasers out of his eyes like Cyclops, but like when he wants to, so he doesn't need the glasses on for that. But then he can see through things like with the, it was a little confusing. Like they they tried to throw too many ocular things into this character that it was like. Okay, make it one or the other. Don't don't give him omniscient visual powers of some sort. That was a little annoying. But he's like the sensitive boy in this, right? Like, he, he hangs around with Mondo, you know, they're like the duo that's making all the quippy comments, but then you see he wants to break away and have a relationship with Buff. You know, he thinks Arlie, <laughs> her real name. Now, I don't think everybody calls her Buff, except for Mondo's like, Big Bad Buffalo is a babe? You know, <laughs> like, so they maybe the Buff in there, but, uh, but yeah, so he's the guy, like, he gets in trouble because his power kicks in when they're making out, that he has to apologize to her right before the big battle he's he's an interesting character and the the sad part is like he's got striking blue eyes when he finally takes off his glasses at one point you're like whoa like he they should have shown his eyes all the time because he looks really kind of alien almost he looks mutant it it was very unexpected even now just you know rewatching it when he took off his glasses i was like oh yeah right like you know his eyes are not what you think would be under those glasses it's it's very shocking as you said but that's so suzanne davis as R. Lee Hicks or Buff. So, you know, while Refrax here had been, in, he was in Legends of the Fall and Primal Fear. He had small roles in those films. She was in 28 Days with Sandra Bullock and one episode of Baywatch. Oh. <laughs> she unfortunately for me like is the most bland of all the actors in the film like because there's a lot of moments where she's supposed to be getting angry and it just it doesn't come through as genuine you know it's like if they replaced her when they took it to series i wouldn't have missed buff how do you guys feel so you know the thing that i felt with with this character was you know if she's supposed to be the strongest one in the whole team they should have showcased that a lot more they definitely wrote her the 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 poorest i would say and her character does fall flat i do think that the actress playing the role did the best she had with what she had to work with which was very little i would have liked to see more of the insecurity of her you know not being comfortable with her with her body similarly to how um umbrella academy has the, you know the the brother who's gigantic and and all hairy and he's very insecure about his body i thought it, it should have been played more and to establish more of her vulnerabilities yeah like i i understand it would have looked ridiculous if they put her in a big muscle suit under her outfit but at the same time it is totally not plausible because there's a scene where they're trying on clothes and then they cut to obviously a bodybuilder mm-hmm. taking off his shirt then they cut back to her and she's just holding uh you know the sweater in front of her chest and you can mm-hmm. see she does not have developed traps or lats or whatever <laughs> like <laughs> whatever those muscles are up on the shoulders you know like there's nothing going on 
on there. Yeah. And then, like, they put her in baggy clothes and sweatsuits. Like, that's supposed to hide it. But just her frame is tiny. She's so yeah. never imagined. very small. Yeah. So casting-wise, it just didn't make sense for what they were trying to sell us was her insecurity and her power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, to her credit, I feel like she does a lot of a lot of the body horror, horror stuff pretty well like being ashamed of herself which was pretty you know true to the generation x comic book so i thought that was pretty good i also i don't know why they just didn't make her husk she's so similar to husk as a character that if they just changed the power a little bit they could have kept the same name in uh, in my opinion but then she also at the end she gets the uh the honor of wearing the x-men costume well kids what do you think of your new uniforms Which was interesting that Jubilee asks Banshee about it in the car. You know, oh, do we do we get to wear costumes? And he's like, oh, you graduate to that. And then in the end, you know, Buff graduates to that. So mm-hmm. it was a little strange. Yeah, I like the way it's shot. Like, it's fun how, like, she's, like, backlit and then, like, the belt buckle with the X shines. But, yeah, at the same time, it's kind of like Buff of all characters, you know? Like, you would think that they would pick somebody else from the comic. And because of that, she's on all the bootleg covers <laughs> that you'd buy at comic book conventions. <laughs> That's the shot that you see. And what's interesting, though, is like, when we talked about the Generation X action figure line, and they actually say that, you know, they're slated to be part of the Generation X toy line, so we were going to get a buff and a refrax figure, probably if this had been picked up, if it had become a bigger deal. So I just think that would have been really interesting, kind of like a Firestar kind of deal, right? Character created for other media and then put it into comics. Um, now, there, I know there's a, a connection to X-Files. So what could you tell us about that, Steven? Well, so this was shot in Vancouver, much like the X-Files. This was a Fox production, much like the X-Files. And it shared a casting associate named Corinne Mares. So, you know, in, in addition to Heather McComb, who, who I mentioned, Kevin McNulty, who plays Matt Frewers, the guy that, you know, he pushes out the window. That uh, dream device? Bobby boy, not that dream device like I'm some maladjusted computer nerd who makes some machines so stressed out yuppies can catch some decent alpha waves. I'm sorry, Russell. Please, go on. It's okay, Bob. I completely understand. He was uh, an X-Files cast member, Gary Chalk, Linda Boyd, Fulvio Cessary. So there's, I think I counted like 10 people who were on the X-Files who were also in this movie. So there's a, a really like strong connection. I believe Kevin McNulty was also in the Nick Fury movie, if I'm not mistaken. So there's one notable cameo that does not appear in this television show, and that is that of Stan Lee. And I wonder if he was like, you know... I don't know if I want to be in this show, period. <laughs> you're, that, I never even thought about that, but you're right, because he was like always in like the Hulk TV movies and whatever else that he could get in. And yeah, no Stanley cameo, not even like a voiceover of some sort. Huh. I mean, he was a producer on it. You would think if they had given him a chance, he would have stepped in there. <laughs> So the other thing I think uh, you could probably speak to this, Stephen, is Mm -hmm. that this is actually the first appearance of another piece of the X-Men movie universe that is actually not an actor, but a setting. Yes. So the X-Mansion used in this movie is the same X-Mansion used in all of the Brian Singer X-Men movies. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy that they found a location they liked and they're like, yep, that's it for every single movie. 
Yeah, and, and you know, obviously Avi Arad was involved with both of them, so he must have just thought it was it was a great place. So, you know, we've talked about our cast of characters. We love most of them. We we got some joy out of their participation in the film. But it turns out that Wizard had some other ideas. They had a famous section called Casting Call that they used to produce. And so, what can you tell us, Stephen? What were Wizard's ideas for who should play who? This is from the April 1997 issue, issue number 68, which has a great Superman blue cover. So this would have been a year after the the Gen X TV movie came out. And it opens with, okay, let's face it. The Generation X TV movie kind of sucked. Fans thought so. We thought so. If Wizard had to cast a Gen X flick, we'd have a massive budget. So ILM could work wonders with the kids' superpowers. Just imagine six Teenage Mutants under the watchful eye of Banshee and the White Queen, two experienced mutants who are no strangers to the X-Men. Add in a strange but mega-powerful foe and his sidekick, and it'd be a a sure hit. As usual, we'd have an all-star teenage cast, which would include... So who do you think that they would have cast as White Queen in, you know, 1997? Um, I was trying to think, like, who were the hot blonde actresses at the time? And so, I, I mean... It's weird that I would think somebody like Pamela Anderson, but obviously there's not the acting chops there. And I was trying to think, who is an attractive British blonde actress? But again, none were coming to mind. So who do you got? I think this is great casting. Rebecca De Hornay, as uh, Wayne and Garth would say. Uh, Rebecca De Mornay. Okay. I, yeah. I think that works. Uh, for Banshee, they went with Rafe Fiennes. Went on to be in Avengers, but not Marvel's Avengers. <laughs> true, very true. A very terrible Avengers movie. Yeah. I guess he was coming off Strange Days, so they were kind of thinking about his sci-fi chops. But I mean, it's yeah. weird that Liam Neeson wouldn't have been in the running, being actually Irish and having done Darkman and like having a foot in that world. But I guess he just wasn't a big enough name yet. Yeah, or, or like David Caruso who was, you know, the top redhead of, yeah. <laughs> of, the, of the 90s. So uh, for Jubilee, they went with Lacey Chabert from Party of Five and uh. Lost in Space. And they, they said, for the tough pyrotechnic Jubilee, we figured we could get away with not using an Asian teen actress. So I don't know if that would fly in this day and age, Wizard, right. but yeah, it's a, it's a little strange. For M, they went with an actress named Rachel True, who was in The Craft. For Sync, they went with an actor who was on a Dangerous Minds TV show that was popular at the time, or was out. I don't know if it was popular, but it was there. Rion Shannon. For Husk, they chose Reese Witherspoon, which is a good choice. Yeah, definitely. Chamber, they went, they went with Stephen Dorff who would later be in Blade, obviously. And then for Skin, they went with an actor named Michael DiLorenzo, who was on New York Undercover, another popular show of the time. The actor that they did cast as Skin in the Generation X TV movie, didn't we say they saw him on an episode of New York Undercover? I think that was the case. I think that's right, yes. And then for Mondo, they chose Sean Weiss, who was uh, Goldberg the goalie in The Mighty Ducks. (laughs) Where's a fat kid? Get us a fat kid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and then Penance, they went with Thora Birch. So it's a, it's an interesting cast. To me, it's just funny that a year later they were already crapping on the Generation X TV movie. I mean, it seems like they certainly planted the seed, I think, because in my estimation, most people probably missed the movie the first time around. Most people did not see it and say this is terrible. I'm pretty sure that they figured out after the fact, reading other people's reports, you know, a decade later. So, or eventually finding a link on YouTube and then watching it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think this was just mostly forgotten. Like, even my friends who like comic books at the time, 
I don't think they watched it. I never ran into anybody else that was willing to discuss it till I met you. So <laughs> <laughs> we are on a very small island here, Muir Island or otherwise. So, Stephen, I know you and I in our many conversations off the mic were constantly discussing our favorite things about this movie, and then it kind of becomes the question then, pretty much on nobody else's list, does this film end up near the top? But in the world of X films and how that universe evolved over time, how have you felt about all the X movies, and I don't know if we need to rank them all or just do our top three or however we feel about it, but I'm curious to see where Generation X ends up. Well, I'm going to make a bold proclamation. This is my favorite X-Men movie. Now, I know it's not the best X-Men movie. Like, to me, I think X2 is probably the best X-Men movie, or Logan, you know, if you count that as kind of an X-Men movie. But, you know, this, this is the one that I always find myself going back to. This is kind of my X-Men comfort food. You know, I put this on in the background when I'm working. It just, like, brings me back to that time period where I loved X-Men the most. And you know what? Like, on paper, I'll say this is better than X-Men The Last Stand. This is better than X-Men Origins Wolverine. I like it more than Days of Futures Past. I think it's better than Apocalypse. Like, I know Russell Tresh is over the top, but he, he looks better than uh, Oscar Isaac's Apocalypse. We can say that, right? Yes, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my favorite adaptation of X-Men is the animated series. And this was the closest thing I think we've had so far to a live action version of that. There's just something about this movie that I just love deep in my heart and I can't explain it. Pretty much totally against everything you said, but <laughs> in terms of your rankings, because X-Men The Last Stand is actually my favorite of really? the franchise. It is just Brett Ratner, I mean, also in the same boat, unfortunately, as Brian Singer, did not survive Me Too and all of that. But I just feel like he has more of a sense of fun where all the Brian Singer films take themselves way too seriously, and I don't like it. And so I felt like The Last Stand felt so comic booky. it felt like an episode of the animated series to me. Like, where it was just like, you know, everything's a little bit heightened, it's a little bit melodramatic, and I like it that way. But that that's what I like about Generation X, too, is it's just, it's not trying to be realistic, it's not putting it into our real world. There's some real emotion involved, and there's a lot of fun involved in it. And so I think that's why I enjoy that aspect, you know, because ultimately, if we're say what's the best, I do, I would put Logan up there, and you know, First Class, I think, is a is a solid film. Yes. Um, but like X two, I remember nothing about that movie. I don't go back and watch X two. I know everybody's like, well, it's so much better than the first. That's true. But at the same time, there are a lot of great pieces of dialogue in the first movie that I can't get enough of. And so I'll go back and watch that. Skip over X two and watch The Last Stand. Well, that's really interesting to me because you know. You know, it took, what, four movies before we got the X-Men in costumes? Four or five movies? Mm-hmm. Whereas this one just, like, goes for it. After 90 minutes, they're wearing, like, full red and yellow X-Men costumes. So this one embraces the weirdness of the X-Men universe uh, more for me than, you know, as we were saying, the, the, that first Brian Singer X-Men movie. While at the time I enjoyed it, it doesn't commit to the bit, I would say. Right. You know, they're, they're wearing their Matrix outfits. And they're, they're still a little bit skittish about saying that they're comic book characters. 
Whereas I can see your point about X-Men 3, though I still despise that movie. <laughs> just hate it. But yeah, like, you know, if it had a taste, it would be Pizza Hut. It, it just feels like my, my childhood of reading X-Men comic books in my room. And as we've said, you know, Heather McComb is just so good. I think outside of Patrick Stewart as, as Professor X, it might be my favorite casting in an X-Men movie. That's how much I loved her as Jubilee. I love this movie. That's all I can say. I, I just love it. Well, it, you know, it, in the case of vindicating this film and, in my case, X-Men The Last Stand, I feel like what they did with the franchise in the final years of the 20th Century Fox saga, they destroyed everything they built up with the first few films. And so, to me, Generation X has to rise above Dark Phoenix and Apocalypse. Those are terrible films. So, Generation X, just by the good nature of the film itself, I think starts to rise to the top. And I I think X-Men The Last Stand as well, I think gets a little bit more polish on it when you look at those other films. And who knows how New Mutants is going to turn out at this point. So to me, I feel like Generation X, you know, maybe somewhere towards the middle now as people start ranking their X-Men movies. Well, I'll say these two points. First of all, I think in 25 years, I think there's going to be a couple guys like us talking about New Mutants. Like like it's the best X-Men movie ever just because of, (laughs) you know, the... The weird thing about it where it, it just won't come out. No one can see it. And and so I think that builds up this kind of anticipation. I can't wait for New Mutants. Like every, every time they delay it, you know, I'm both aggravated, but I'm also like a little bit, okay, this is building up the legend. This is making me want it even more that you keep pushing it away from me. And then the other thing, this movie hasn't really seen a real release. I mean, yeah. the only way you can watch it is on YouTube or a bootleg. And I know on on one of your podcasts, one of your friends put out the call that he wants a Blu-ray of The Wizard, another movie that I love. So I'm just going to call my shot. I want a Blu-ray of Generation X. Like, I want this to be fully appreciated by another generation for what it really is. Yeah, get it done, Disney. I mean, we've gotten all the Captain America TV movies, even the Nick Fury, David Hasselhoff film. Just do it. Put it out there. You know, just let's get it released. And yeah, maybe it's not a huge seller for you, but you never know. When Disney-produced X-Men film comes out, then that's the time. Release it. We'll be ready for it. I'm all in. Maybe you can produce the special features. What do you say, Steven? You want to make that offer to Shout Factory? I will do that. You have my commitment that I will produce the special features. So did you guys have any final thoughts? Yeah, like, you know, this came at at the right time for me where I just wanted to see a live action Marvel movie. And this was pretty cool. And and I think it does do a lot of stuff that's right. And I think it gets Jubilee pretty right. Uh, I think it gets the Banshee and White Queen relationship very right. You know, to me, it's almost like what could have been where you could have seen this on the Fox 90s lineup, you know, alongside Mantis and Sliders. It's not that much different in quality from an episode of Sliders. Hey, you got to say it right, Stephen. Sliders. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I I agree. I I think the greatest strength of this film is definitely not the filmmaking itself, as we discussed, but the writing and the character relationships. Mm -hmm. I mean, because there is so little actual superheroics in this film, the fact that I love watching it whenever over and over again is because I love the dialogue, I love the characters, and if it had nothing to do with a comic book, I, if I had seen this, I would have been like, you know what, this is better than 90210 for me. I want to watch 
this. I want to watch these characters and where they develop and wherever their adventures take them. So I, I think that if I was to point to anything, people are like, oh, it's cheap, it's lame. It's like, okay, yeah, production values, it's not an MCU production, but it's got a sense of humor, it's got some attitude, it's got some style. But Michael, the voice of reason, <laughs> what would you say if someone was to say, have you seen that Generation X movie? I'm going to preface this by saying it's not the worst piece of trash I've ever seen ever on television or whatever, but it, it, it was definitely an ambition for its time, and I, I did not hate it. I'll say that. There we go. That's the best good. we could ask for. <laughs> so for me, I'm going to go a little bit more filmic in this conversation where I'm going to say like pre the mid 2000s and shows like Lost and whatever, for me, the, the pinnacle of pilots in television from the 80s and 90s was the Michael Mann directed Miami Vice pilot. And I base all shows pilots on that and how good that was like a mini movie. And this was intended to be a mini movie as well. And as a ambitious project, I feel like in a lot of aspects of it, the editing was a problem because things are a little bit all over the place and the story feels a little disjointed at times. And it's, it's hard to weave things together. And they tried to throw in 10 pounds of thing into a five pound bucket. And I would have liked to have seen them focus more on the characters' relationships and less on the main villain because we don't really see a true like three-act structure in this show where you see the villain's progression, which is the main focus of the show, is him because he kind of carries the whole show. And, and they kind of just get thrown into this whole thing in, in late in the second act. And it, it, it took me out. I would just feel like it was probably a combination of edits as well as just weird writing and dialogue. And that I had a bit of a problem with the characters themselves i feel like if this had gotten like even 10 episodes to fully flush out like a a a decent first season it might have been very compelling because the actors like you could tell they were actually very in it and they weren't just phoning in the roles and i feel like there was something there i just feel like that they needed a little bit of a rewrite and do some reshoots as well that would have changed things and made it more of a fluid story 24 days yeah give give them one extra day do a little bit of adr just change some dialogue and voice it it's it's funny you know obviously all your criticisms are 100 percent valid it's just that nostalgia for it you know blinds us i think sometimes where you know i can watch that 1990 captain america movie and i know it's not on paper a good movie but i just like i see myself as a 10 year old in that video store walking in and being like there's a captain america movie when did this happen and popping it in and it was the closest thing i'd ever get i thought to a cap like to a real big captain america movie and in that show's defense and adam and i talked about this on an earlier podcast that is the most comic book accurate captain america costume or superhero costume i've ever seen to date still it was perfect sure spot on yeah and and like this is such a weird anomaly like you know adam sent us the the tv listings this was airing opposite home improvement in roseanne yeah in the mid 90s like there was no chance that you would ever see anything like this which i think is why it built up such this legendary status because it aired once and a few of us saw it when it aired and we've been thinking about it ever since. Yeah. 
Well, and here's the thing. So according to Wizard Magazine, in June of 1996, so a few months later, they were following up on what's the status of Generation X. So it was be reportedly in development as a possible series, along with 33 other pilots, because it finished number 72 out of 108 programs in the Nielsen ratings the week it premiered. So they claim that it was doing 11% better than Fox's previous Tuesday night movies, and was number one with males age 18. 18 to 34 who were not watching Roseanne and Home Improvement. <laughs> They're like, networks love that demographic. We're very optimistic, but yeah. Actually, producer Avi Arad suggested that Fox turn it into a series to be broadcast before the X-Files on Friday nights so they could call it X-Night. <laughs> That's pretty good marketing. You know, Avi's got a good brain for it. <laughs> but, you know, as I mentioned, not all the cast members reportedly were interested in returning. So I would love to know who was in and who was not. Uh, but, you know, Amaryllis, like I said, said she was interested in doing more with the Monet character. But they went back to Bruce Salas of New World Pictures, who said they were going to start filming now the Black Widow movie in Paris that summer. And this is how the film is being described. Quote, a wildly successful magazine publisher by day and a crime-fighting adventure by night, Black Widow will stop at nothing to bring down Octopus, the world crime syndicate responsible for her father's death. Uh, It was admittedly a departure from the comics. But but they thought they were doing Black Widow before Nick Fury at this point. And then I guess they just scrapped it and went with Nick Fury with Hasselhoff. But <laughs> off the mark on that one, I could see. So in our research, you know, I was doing as much as I could with the magazines of the time. And there's really not a whole lot about the movie out there. But what could you tell us, Stephen, about what was to come with Generation X years after this movie failed to catch fire and go to series? So I found this small reference on the Wikipedia page for this movie that at the 1999 Fox TV upfronts, and the upfronts are basically kind of a sales presentation for the advertisers where a network will tell you what they're developing for the next season. So in, the, in on the Wikipedia page, it says that they were developing an animated series in 1999. But then I went and watched the video on YouTube and it is not an animated series. It is in fact a live action series that they were planning for Saturday morning on Fox. So I mean- Right, and some of the projects that Rich just mentioned that are on our development slate are gonna first appear on our schedule as specials and stunts because these are the types of programming events that kids have come to expect from us. And so one of those will be Generation X. And what you see here is some animation from the comic book, but we're going to do this differently. We're going to turn this into a live-action series for kids, which takes us into the lives of the X-Men before they became X-Men. So here we're able to take that proven franchise and add a fresh new twist to it. You know, picture like a Power Rangers or a Ninja Turtles and X-Mutation, and they were going to do it as that. And they have this, you know, this image... And it's an animated image, but they do say it's going to be a live action series where they've got Banshee and he kind of looks like Guy Gardner and they've got M. And, and I can't tell who the, the woman with pink hair is. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the universe far enough down the line. Maybe they added some characters or they did a redesign to one of them. But yeah, I don't know who that is. Yes. Yeah, so they so they were talking about 
developing it further as a kind of kid show on on Saturday mornings. Yeah, that would have been amazing if that's how people remembered it, right? Like if that's the version that everybody was like, oh yeah, Generation X, that was my favorite show when I was 10. You know? <laughs> and then now, you know, it's just like, well, it was our favorite show when we were 10. Ah, you old guys, you don't know. <laughs> but I could just see it coming out after the Mystic Knights of Tirnanog or something, you know, just that weird era of the Saban Power Rangers successors. Talk about committing to, you know, the, the wackiness of the X-Men universe. That would have been as bright and colorful and silly as, like, anything in a comic book. Yeah, and I just feel like at a certain point, just like they crossed over the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the next mutation with Power Rangers, Generation X just would have gotten into the mix somehow. It, it would have been a dream come true for all of us. <laughs> total crossover strangely enough though just as we close like in 2001 a syndicated series called mutant x did get play on stations around the country but i think like that was probably got green litter was more popular because of the 2000 x-men movie at that point but i just feel like what was so different about that one versus this one you know just timing just the way it was being presented i don't know but yeah so it it always seemed like it was very similar because it was a guy on the run with superpowered kids and he had helped create them or something like that you know, superpowered young people it wasn't power pack you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah but anyway yeah so this is a movie that has gone on to have some sort of infamy i think you know and i don't know how many minds we've changed tonight i mean the shortcomings are obvious if you were there watching it if you recorded on your vhs tape you probably feel like steven and i do if you are coming to it because of the notoriety you probably probably agree with its reputation it's hard to jump back into those 1996 shoes but michael steven thanks so much for doing this steven this is a a dream come true for you as well so (laughs) if russell tresh comes into your dreams tonight you could say hey buddy you got nothing on me as long as he doesn't lick my face i'm okay with that (laughs) (laughs) but we hope you enjoyed our discussion here thank you so much for joining us for this bonus episode And, you know, we always love to hear your input. So be sure uh, you're commenting, telling us your Generation X memories. But also let us know what other movies you want us to cover. Should we get into the Hasselhoff Nick Fury film? Are there others that we're overlooking? You know, it was suggested a while ago we do Darkman. Michael and I are still dragging our heels on that, but we will get to it. I'm dragging my heels because I really wanted to do Meteor Man or uh, (laughs) or Blank Man. That's what I really wanted to do. I was like, oh. Oh, I love those two movies. They're fantastic movies. And I think we'll come back around and you'll have to defend Blank Man to everybody. What do you oh, think? <laughs> come on. Damon Wayans and then David Allen Greer. Do I need to say any more, please? <laughs> I just want to say you're on your own on the Blank Man defense. Really? <laughs> Sorry. I love Meteor Man, but Blank Man's rough. So the fun. whole era of 90s superhero movies. So much to discuss. So we'll catch you next time. <laughs> This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.